Well, it is a joy to be back with you uh, after a weekend away uh, with the youth students at winter camp uh, last weekend, which was uh, a lot of fun uh, to be in constant temptation to make a snowball uh, when you're surrounded by snow. Like I could throw this at anybody right now. Uh, one quick uh, announcement, a bit of uh, really exciting news. Uh, a couple months back, uh, we were doing a, a welcome uh, the pastor lunch. Bruce was uh, sharing a little bit about his own uh, history in uh, ministry, and that his at his first ministry, uh, he uh, he. W- uh, was paid part-time uh, by the church, and then he was responsible to raise uh, all of the additional support that he uh, needed to kind of make uh, ends meet. So the church supplemented, uh, and then he did a little bit of uh, fundraising uh, in that process. And uh, that got me uh, thinking a little bit about uh, our own uh, youth director, uh, Jacob Ansel, who led us in communion uh, this morning. And I said, hey, what if we, what if we did something similar with uh, Jacob? Uh, and uh, so we've been uh, talking with Jacob, and he's been... Uh, kind of uh, raising some uh, some support. And what we have decided to do is uh, to have a similar thing take place with Jacob. We've been paying him uh, part-time to be our uh, student ministries uh, director, uh, and uh, he has raised the support to be able to come on full-time and help us with some additional uh, administrative things. So I just wanted to inform you of that. That's uh, tremendous news. We are, we, we can, uh, we are, we are thankful for... Uh, for Jacob's uh, service in that capacity, we are thankful for uh, how the Lord has uh, provided uh, six months of support uh, already, uh, and we're looking forward to uh, just some uh, additional ways that uh, the Lord will continue uh, to provide uh, for our ministry here at Ambassador. And it's been uh, it's been really neat uh, over the last three years to see how God has provided in so many ways uh, for our young church, uh, and uh, we will continue. Uh, to serve him. Uh, that's our goal and, and leave uh, the results and the provision uh, in his hands. Uh, so uh, if you would uh, open your Bibles with me to uh, the Gospel of John chapter 6, that's where we're going to uh, pick up our study this morning. And, and as you're turning there, I probably don't have to, to say too much to convince you that, that living in our world, which is cursed by sin, because of Adam and Eve's decision to, to rebel against God. Back in Genesis 3, if they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, their eyes were opened and they became like God, knowing those things. But uh, as a result, uh, all of creation was cursed. Uh, and now we, we live in a world that it's difficult to survive in. Uh, if you think of the, the numerous uh, natural disasters uh, that, that challenge humanity uh, globally, uh, there was a, a 7.6 magnitude earthquake that hit uh, Tan Shan, China back in 1976. And uh, it was at 3.42 in the morning and said that in minutes that the entire city, uh, which was an industrial city with approximately a million inhabitants, basically it ceased to exist. Uh, that uh, 85% of the buildings in the city collapsed or were unusable, and all services failed. Uh, and it's estimated on, on the low end of the spectrum that 242,000 people died in that earthquake, and on the high end of the estimates uh, is uh, three times that, close to, to 700,000 people died in that earthquake. By comparison, the 1994 Northridge, California earthquake had a, a magnitude of 6.7 and 60 people were killed. But not only are there earthquakes, but there's also hurricanes and typhoons, right? In recent years, uh, hurricanes uh, Katrina and Harvey uh, have respectively destroyed, uh, caused great damage to New Orleans and Houston. And there's also disease. The, the Spanish flu epidemic in 1918 to 1920 infected nearly 500 million people worldwide, uh, and close to 100 million people died. Okay, which was about 5% of the world's population. Think about that. One out of every 20 people died in that epidemic. Think about the implications of that just for those here in this room if that was to take place again. And, and right now, what's the big thing going on in China? The coronavirus. Right? They're saying that it's the, the, the world's largest health emergency and they uh, have completely uh, quarantined the city of Wuhan, uh, a city of 11 million people. I always want to know, how do you do that? How do you quarantine that many people? And that's only one of 17 cities that with travel restrictions in China right now. Huge, uh, huge issue there, uh, the coronavirus. And then uh, in addition to that, there's 
huge problems with, with rain and flooding in India and, and forest fires and around the globe. Have you probably seen the, the many fires that have been raging for weeks in Australia and then the, the fires that come up every single year in, in California and uh, there was a tremendous fire up in Canada several years ago. And you just think of all of these natural disasters. Uh, and what it is like to live in a in a world cursed and tainted by sin. Survival is hard now. Not to mention all of those disasters. And then there's our, our brutal Idaho winters, right, uh, that we are currently uh, enduring. But within all of those things, life is hard, right? And, and even just living in a sin-cursed world can be compounded by a couple other things. Right? There, there's natural disasters and the difficulty of making a living. But then there, we ourselves sin and we make life even harder. Right? And then, so we sin, complicating our own lives. And then what do other people have this tendency of doing? They sin against us, which makes life more difficult. And then... Another possibility that complicates matters is that we can at times misunderstand or fail to believe God's word, which leads to to further sin, further chaos, further difficulty, because we begin to to build our life on something that's not true. And while we, we can't guard ourselves from natural disasters, nor can we completely shield ourselves from being sinned against by others, unless you want to go live uh, as a hermit uh, in the mountains, which that's your choice. Uh, but we can learn what God's word has to say about our, how our own sin complicates life and about the solutions that it presents to us that give us hope, comfort, and peace, even in the middle of a life that's difficult to live because we live in a sin-cursed world. And this morning's passage especially addresses how we tend to misunderstand the gospel uh, and then we complicate life further. Life is already hard enough. I'm going to use that word quite a bit this morning, the gospel. Uh, when, I, when I speak of the gospel, what I mean is the, the Bible's message about how we are reconciled to God. See, the Bible says that all of humanity has uh, fallen into sin. We don't just live in a world that's cursed by sin. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. The Bible says that we have separated ourselves from a holy God who has created us and continues to sustain us. And the gospel message then explains how we get back to God from our situation of being separated from him. This morning we're going to look at John chapter 6 verses 22 to 29. But before we we come to that passage, I want to uh, give a a brief... uh, update on the, the context of where we are. I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in uh, John's gospel, but as you, you look just a little bit at the, the headings in John chapter 6, you see uh, verses 1 to 15, this is titled The, the Feeding of the 5,000, and that's where we had uh, Jesus and his disciples just trying to get away to get some rest. Right? They, they wanted to have a little bit of downtime, and so they said, okay, let's go. They were uh, on the, the western side of the Sea of Galilee, which is a large lake uh, in Palestine. They said, all right, let, let's get away from the crowds, and let's go across to the eastern side, which is more desolate. Uh, but when the, the people found out where they were going, remember, they, they ran all the way around the lake, dedicated runners, uh, and they beat them there so that when they get off of the boat and step onto the shore, there's another crowd waiting for them there. And it's late in the day, and Jesus has compassion upon the people and says, Hey, what are they going to do for food? And so Jesus uh, decides to, to feed them. Uh, and we get to the number of 5,000 because there were 5,000 men, but Matthew tells us that number didn't include the, the many women and children who were there. So it's much more likely that Jesus fed fifteen to 20,000 people that day with five barley loaves the size of a pita bread and two pickled fish. And the people were so impressed with this miracle that Jesus performed, they said, hey, let's make this guy king right now. And Jesus says, no, that that can't happen in this way or at this time. So Jesus sends away the crowds and he sends his disciples away by boat. And Jesus himself goes up onto a mountain to be alone and to pray. But that night, as the disciples were, were rowing to the opposite shore, which shouldn't have taken that long. And there, there was a storm that arose from the, the winds and uh, the waves became uh, against them. And they rode basically for more than six hours and didn't get very far. 
But as they're on the middle of the, the lake, they see Jesus walking to them on the water. And they initially like, oh, there's a ghost coming. We're in trouble now. Uh, but then Jesus announces who he is. And they're like, okay, they receive him into the boat. And then another miracle takes place. Uh, the wind and the waves stop and they are immediately transported to Capernaum. That's where things leave off at the end of uh, verse 21. And then as we're going to look at uh, verses 22 to 29 today, I want to read briefly verses 22 through, through 25 to get uh, a feeling of what happens that next morning. So look at me at verse 22. It says, On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And so this, this crowd that had been dispersed by Jesus on the, the eastern side of the, the lake, they obviously didn't disperse too far because the next morning, what do they all do? They regather and said, hey, where, where is Jesus? Uh, and they, they recall, hey, there was only one boat here and Jesus sent his disciples away on that boat and he... And he wasn't on the boat. So where is he? He's got to be around here somewhere. But they search and they search and they can't find him. And again, as the reader, we know what happened. But the crowd doesn't. And as the, the crowd on the eastern side of the, the lake uh, is searching for Jesus, there's uh, another crowd that comes basically on these boats from Tiberias, which is a, a town on the western side of the sea. And so you have all these people searching and looking for Jesus. And when they can't find him on the eastern side, they all get in the boats and cross back over to Capernaum. They're searching and ultimately they find him. And when they find him on the, the western side in Capernaum, they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? How did you get here? And verse 59 tells us that the, this conversation that's going to be prompted by this question between the, the people and, and Jesus is going to be a long interaction Verse 59 in this same chapter tells us that all of this takes place in a synagogue there in Capernaum. And Jesus was there teaching and they come and they, they question him. And verse uh, 22 through the end of the chapter, I think I mentioned this last time, is what's known as the bread of life discourse. Uh, and because in this uh, large section, Jesus presents himself as, you can guess it, the bread of life. Uh, and we're going to take this discourse one bite at a time pun intended. Uh, and uh, so little, little portions week by week. And the portion that we're going to study this morning is going to show us how Jesus responded to the crowd that was searching for him, who had found him in Capernaum. And as Jesus interacts with them, he's going to address their misunderstandings about who he is, what he offers, and how they should respond to him. And he corrects their misunderstandings of the central message of his ministry. You know, what do we call that central message of Jesus and the Bible? the gospel. And as Jesus corrects their misunderstandings, he's also going to show us our own misunderstandings of, of the ways that we are prone to fall into our own wisdom, our own way of thinking, and we drift away from the, the truth of the gospel and we, we drift away from Christ. And when we do that, life becomes increasingly more difficult. Hardships increase. And because we believe things that are not true, we begin to build our life upon those untruths. But in what ways do we misunderstand the gospel? And here we're going to see this morning, verses 26 to 29, are three ways that we misunderstand the gospel of grace. Three ways that we misunderstand who Jesus is, what he offers, and what we are, or how we are called to respond to him. And this is important because, again, misunderstanding has consequences. You all know that when you're in conversation with uh, somebody that you know and love and there's a misunderstanding that arises between you, what typically is the result? Conflict, right? Uh, and so you, that's why we get conflict in our life when we misunderstand the gospel. We're trying to live one way and it's not working out and we can't figure out why. Well, this is going to be some explanation of these misunderstandings that we fall into. And the first misunderstanding is found in verse 26. So we can call this misunderstanding that we, we follow with the wrong motives. 
We follow with the wrong motives. Look with me at verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And you notice Jesus didn't answer their question. They say, Rabbi, how did you, how did you get here? How long have you been here? And he says, let's skip over that. But, but knowing their hearts, and that's a recurring theme that we see in John's gospel, going back to the end of John chapter 2, where it says that Jesus had no need for anybody to tell him what's going on in the heart of man because he himself knows that. Knowing what's going on in their, their hearts, he begins to inform the people, hey, hey here's your motive. It says, you're, you're not seeking me because you saw signs. You're seeking me because you ate and you were full. This is a, a heavy rebuke upon the crowd by Jesus. They were, they were searching for him, which is good, but they were searching with wrong motives. Okay, they were driven to have a, a full stomach rather than a full heart. They wanted satisfied bellies, but not a satisfied soul. They wanted the physical blessings of Jesus, but they had no appetite for the spiritual blessings that he offered to them. You can say it another way. That they, they loved the gift, but they didn't love the giver. Or they, they loved the benefit, but not the benefactor. And uh, that type of mindset, even in the eyes of the world, that type of affection is looked down upon. All right? our, our own culture has a familiar term for those who who love someone just merely for their money. What do we call that person? A, yep, uh, a gold digger. That's what good. Talk to me. Uh, a gold digger, right? And again, if, if you look at the 20th century, there are, there are many infamous relationships uh, of young, between young, attractive women uh, who decide to, to marry a rich, older man in order to uh, gain the benefit of his wealth. What's amazing is that if, if that type of love, if that type of affection is, is reprehensible before the world, is it going to be acceptable to God? That we would draw near to Him just to receive something from Him? Especially physical benefits? No. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. You're, you're focused upon the wrong thing. You're following Him with the wrong motives. And, and some of you may point out, or you might object, that, well, but the New Testament does teach that Jesus does provide for our needs, right? Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus says, all of these things will be provided you. And he's speaking of, hey, food, uh, clothing, shelter, water, all of the necessities of life. Uh, but Jesus says those are going to be provided if, he says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And then the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.19 says this to the Philippians. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So then are, are we not supposed to want any of the physical blessings that, that are promised to us by God? Isn't that a good thing that God promises to, to care for us? Right? That's what Psalm 23 is about. The, the good shepherd, what does a good shepherd do? He cares for his sheep. Well, may it never be that we are unthankful. We should praise God for all that he blesses us with here on the earth. But, but here's where the issue arises. And we have to understand that the, the greatest blessings of God and those that we should look forward to the most are not the, the physical provisions that he brings into our life, but the spiritual blessings that he has provided for us through his son, Jesus Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You know, every is an exact number. How much does every include? Oh, every, every single one. Every blessing that we have from God spiritually has come through the person of Jesus. And that's what we need to, to look at and focus upon and, and grasp uh, the magnitude of all that God has given us in Christ. Colossians 1.27 says this, of, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this crowd of people love the gift rather than the giver. 
But what's also amazing is they, they, they love the gift, but they love the lowest of the gifts that the giver was willing to give. Right? They didn't even love the, the greatest gifts. They, they love the lowest gifts, the, the smallest, tiniest things is what they wanted. And we often do the same thing. But instead of bread, we want other things. Uh, a better job, a larger house, uh, a spouse who, who loves us, children who obey a conflict, suffering-free life. Rather than, than full bellies, we want full wallets, and full houses, full lives. We want different things, but the heart motive is the same. We may scoff at this crowd and look down upon them, but we commit the same sin when we misunderstand all that Jesus offers us. Jesus doesn't just offer provision and blessing in this life. He doesn't just say, hey, I'll make you happy, healthy, and and wealthy now. When we worship him with wrong motives, drawing near to him with a, a gold digger's heart, so to speak, we do that because the things of this world have captured our affections. And many people follow Jesus not because they love him, but because they want something specific from him. Again, sometimes that's a, a material good, and sometimes that's just, God, I, I will obey you as long as you do this for me. Kind of thinking back to the Old Testament uh, in, in Genesis 32, God appears to Jacob, uh, and Jacob says, okay, I will worship you if you, you do this, this, and this. Then you will have my allegiance. And that's not the way that it works. That's a wrong motive. We don't get to to dictate terms with God and... We must not just desire his blessing and his provision. We must also desire his presence and his lordship in our lives. But when we only desire the the physical things, we have begun to follow Jesus with the wrong motives. Again, we do that because we, we misunderstand what Jesus is offering to us. He doesn't just offer physical There are things that are infinitely greater. He offers us forgiveness and cleansing from the guilt of sin, victory and freedom in the battle against sin. He offers us peace and comfort in the midst of trials and hardship. Amen? Those things are infinitely greater. But again, most most importantly, of all that Jesus gives to us, love what 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Again, that is the greatest benefit of the gospel. Yes, yes there, are, there are many spiritual blessings, and every one of them comes through Christ. But the, the greatest blessing of the gospel, the greatest blessing that we receive through Christ, is that he brings us to God the Father. He reconciles us and brings us into fellowship with himself, with the Holy Spirit, with God the Father, our triune God. So how might we, we guard our hearts against following Jesus with the wrong motives? Right? If you, if you keep your finger here in the Gospel of John and turn over a few pages to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Apostle Paul, it's a great little passage that addresses this very topic. Philippians chapter 3 Verses 17 through 21. How do we guard our heart against worshiping Jesus with the wrong motives? And the first remedy would be that, would say this, of walk with others who are following Jesus according to the pattern set in the apostles. Philippians 3:17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Right? So walk with other Christians pursuing Christ. And then what are we called to do as we walk and follow Jesus together? We, we guard one another's hearts and say, hey, uh, let's pursue Christ. I think you're, you're wandering off and your affections for this world are, are growing steadily. I'm, I'm here to call you back to following Christ. Second uh, help uh, and guard in this is uh, found in verses 18 and 19 of understanding the danger of Allowing your desire for earthly things to rule your life. Look at me at those verses, verse 18 and 19. For many of whom 
I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So Paul is mournful of of people that he has seen fall away because of the the cares of this world. Again, they want the, the physical things. Look at verse 19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their what? Their belly. Sounds a lot like this crowd that Jesus is interacting with in John chapter 6, right? What is it they want most from Jesus? A full belly. That's why they're following him around uh, in, in a broad area. Where's Jesus? I'm hungry. Thirdly, a help in this of guarding our hearts against following Jesus with the wrong motives is focusing upon the spiritual blessings provided for us in Christ. Beginning of verse 20. Or we didn't first finish verse 19. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Then verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. Right? If we focus upon the spiritual blessings that we have and understand their superiority to the physical blessings, then our, our love and our affection for those physical things here on the earth will gradually decrease. And then lastly, in the remainder of verse 20 and then in verse 21, that we should look forward to the return of Jesus in glory. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Again, when we see and understand all that Jesus offers to us, then we have a greater desire for the spiritual blessings. Every spiritual blessing that we have from God comes through Jesus. And may our love and affection for Jesus grow as we desire those spiritual blessings and and understand the, the magnitude of them rather than just focusing upon the here and now temporary provisions of God that He gives to us as the Good Shepherd. And following Jesus with wrong motives reveals a misunderstanding of all that He offers to us and Again, we undervalue spiritual blessings that he gives us, while at the same time overvaluing the the physical and material things. Uh, And all of that leads then to a a second misunderstanding in verse 27. We could call it this, that, that we labor for the wrong food. We labor for the wrong food. Look with me at verse 27. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So here Jesus gives them a, a prohibition and then a, he implies a, a corresponding command, right? Uh, he says, hey, do not work for the food that, that perishes, for the food that spoils. And the, the implication of this command, the way that it's worded in the Greek, is that, hey, you've been doing this and you need to stop right now. Stop it. Okay? You've been pursuing the, the food that is temporary, the food that is going to, to perish and have no lasting value. Right? You all ate breakfast this morning, but it's getting close to lunchtime, right? And what are you going to want again at lunchtime? More food. And what are you going to want again later? More food. So Jesus says, do not labor, do not work for the food that perishes and spoils, but... What's implied then is that we we do work for the food that endures, that remains, and leads to eternal life. That is what we are called to strive for. That's what we are supposed to pursue, what really matters. As I read this passage, it reminds me quite a bit of a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's also why Jesus says, hey, make sure you're striving for the right things now, because what will happen? Your heart is going to follow your feet. And if your affection is leading you towards the things of this world, where is your heart going to go? It's going to go in exactly the the same direction. We have to say, no, I'm going to store up for myself treasure in heaven. No, I'm going to pursue the food that leads to eternal life. 
But again, in, in verse 27, Jesus continues on and explains why or how we are to obtain that. It says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And again, Jesus uses that designation, Son of Man, because it points back to the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the the Messiah is given all authority by the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father. And so what Jesus is saying is, if you want this food, who do you have to go to? Him. You have to go to the Son of Man. Again, the Son of Man is able to dispense food that leads to eternal life, because how much authority has been given to Him? Again, an exact number, all authority. So Jesus has the authority to give us the food that we need, the food that leads to eternal life. And if we want it, we don't work for it. We go to the one who gives it. That's what the crowd should have understood. Jesus is urging the people and all who read these words even now to make sure we pursue the right type of food. And food is a picture of the life that God gives. And we understand physical food because we can't live without it, right? There's kind of a broad spectrum of understanding of how long a human being can, can go without eating. Right? Some say it's as little as eight days. Uh, others say you can you know, live three or four weeks. I hope kind of I would go in eight days rather than three or four weeks if that, if that were the case. But that's sobering to think about. And food, we understand. Food is what we depend on to live. But again, we don't necessarily think and contemplate and realize, no, I need the food, not the physical food that is provided here on the earth, but I need the spiritual food that only Christ can give to me. And as we see here, there are really only two options that we can pursue in life. And the food that is physical and temporary and that we can obtain for ourselves. But where does that food lead? And it, it spoils, it perishes. The other option is to pursue food that we can't obtain ourselves because it's, it's spiritual, because it's eternal. But that food endures and it leads to eternal life. And you know, when it's laid out like that, none of us would say that we would prefer order number one. Right? I'll take a uh, food that perishes combo, uh, and can you supersize me? Right? We, 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 don't, we don't have that attitude uh, outwardly. We all would say, hey, I want to prefer that food that leads to eternal life. But if we were just to actually just examine the way that we live, what do we usually prefer? Right? We're prone to seek our, our satisfaction in those temporary things that provide just a, a little bit of joy, a little bit of satisfaction, but, but do they truly satisfy us? No. Last week uh, at winter camp, again, as, as Jacob mentioned, we looked at how we, we live in a, a world that is constantly pressuring us to conform to its image. And we talked about, again, we are created to be worshipers, but we end up becoming idolaters. And when idolatry is present in our life, we say the result is pressure, right? When you're worshiping something other than God, you try and keep that little idol happy. Because that idol keeps you happy as you worship it. It's it's a mutual symbiotic relationship. And when we... The same is true here. See, we were created to live as worshipers. We were created to live on the food that Jesus provides, But what do we try and live on instead? Food that perishes, food that spoils. And then again, we wonder why we're having stomach issues. I don't know. I just keep eating this bad food for me. And when we look at the the results of our life, why is there always chaos? Why is there this, this constant hardship? And again, some of it comes from living in a world tainted by sin, but so much of it also comes from ourselves and from others sinning against us. That's what we have to, to make sure that we labor for the right food. And when we labor for the wrong food, we're guilty of worshiping and pursuing something other than Jesus. We all have idols in our hearts that urge us to worship something other than God. Again, why do we do that? Why do we turn to other things? Because in the moment, what do we think about that thing, whatever it may be? Say, oh, this will make me happy. 
If I, if I worship this, here, here's the benefit that comes to me. You know, I always define an, an idol something that we look to as a source of satisfaction or as a solution to our problems. And again, that can be anything that we elevate above God. Uh, in, in my own life, uh, for years and years, all through high school and into college, my idol was football. That was my identity. Uh, that's where I found my uh, satisfaction. And that was the solution to my problems of getting out of my parents' house. Uh, and so I, I looked to football as an idol. That's what gave me hope. But then I began to realize that, that football can be taken from you in a variety of ways. Injury, coaches, other life circumstances. And then you begin to see the idols in your life when they begin to uh, be taken away from you. And then when that, when that idol that you built your life on begins to crumble and, you, and your life is beginning to wobble uh, and chaos ensues. Yeah, again, how, how does that, how does that feel? Well, and we usually feel the, the, the foundation that we uh, have built our life upon rumbling beneath us, but we don't really understand what's happening. We understand, hey, uh, man, it's just been difficult recently. Well, why is that? Because we, we've built our life upon something else. I had to realize that, that football was fun, but it would never bring lasting satisfaction. Football was a horrible idol. It could never deliver on what it promised. And your idol might not be football, or it might be. But we all have idols hidden away in our hearts. John Calvin famously said that our hearts are idol factories. And we look for satisfaction in material possessions, comfort, security. We look for uh, human relationships and the approval of other people to be the solution to our problems or as that source of satisfaction. We, we look to our jobs, our homes, our accomplishments. But again, what happens when those things are taken away from us? And again, that's a, that's a good barometer of where we are in our faith. Because if we are founded upon Christ, when those things are taken from us, how should our life feel? Still just as stable as ever, right? Because what are we standing on? We're standing on Christ. So how we respond to the loss of certain things reveals a lot. How do you feel when you don't have all the things that you want? How do you feel when you don't have the approval of your peers or your co-workers? How do you feel when your job is not what you want it to be? Or when your home is not as big or as beautiful as you had dreamed? Or your, your spouse isn't as agreeable? Or your children aren't as obedient as you hoped for them to be? All of that reveals what's going on in our hearts. So then how do we apply what Jesus is commanding here? And the application is kind of easy because Jesus gives commands, right? Stop this and start this, right? Cease from pursuing satisfaction in the food, the things of in, in this life that perish, and stop looking for things in this life to make you happy. But begin to work, labor, toil for the food that endures. Pursue those things that lead to eternal life and that will remain for eternity but in order for that to to happen you have to be convinced of something okay because you're not going to be convinced to go out and rearrange your life and say man i've been pursuing this idol and now i i see that i need to pursue christ there's something that you need to be convinced of before you'll be willing to go out and do that and that is the goodness and the greatness of christ are you convinced that Jesus can satisfy you more than that idol, right? And usually, that's a hard lesson to learn. We only really learn that when that idol lets us down. That's when I realized that football was a poor idol, right? Putting all my hope, all my satisfaction, all my identity in that, and it let me down. Say, so, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't do that anymore. It's a hard lesson to learn, but that's where we have to, to look and examine our hearts. And that's where we have to, to look at Scripture and behold Christ and, and be convinced of this spiritual truth. That only Jesus is able to satisfy us. Only Jesus is able to satisfy. 
And if you are inwardly convinced of that truth by Scripture and by your own experience, then you will begin to live differently. And you will begin to to work to pursue that food that endures, that leads to eternal life. The first misunderstanding was a result of not comprehending the riches of all that Jesus offers to us, right? We're satisfied with the small things, the physical things, and we don't have an appetite for the spiritual things that he offers. In a similar way, this second misunderstanding is, is a result of not comprehending all that Jesus is. And again, once again, we are satisfied with something that is far lesser rather than being satisfied in Christ. Those two misunderstandings then also lead to a third misunderstanding that we see in verses 28 and 29 in this passage. We could call this misunderstanding that we trust in the wrong works. Look with me at verses 28 and 29. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So Jesus is is talking to them. And and the way that Jesus tends to answer questions leads to more questions. You ever notice that? Like, can you clarify that? Uh, And uh, I think that word work caught their attention because to the to the Jewish ear with a background in in Judaism and the religion of the Pharisees which is works based of do this don't do that uh, and your hope for your salvation is rooted in the things that you do for God and so they said hey tell us more about that give us an itemized list Jesus can you just write those things down what are the works of God that we need to do And the question is really, what does God require of us? And the very fact that they asked that question reveals a couple things. Number one, they they misunderstood what Jesus said before, because Jesus says, work for the food that leads to eternal life, which I will give to you. So what should they have asked? Jesus, can I just have some of that food? Right? You said to work for it, but you give it, so I'm asking. That's what they should have said. Now, they will ask for it later on in verse 34. But rather than immediately latching onto that, they instead latch onto the, this concept of works. Additionally, the fact that they ask this question means that they think they can do enough good things, they can accomplish enough good works to be right with God in and of their own strength. And so we begin to see in their way of thinking. But I love Jesus' response, and you might have caught the difference. In his response, and as I, as I read these verses, they ask, what are the works, plural, that we need to do? But what does Jesus say? It's only one. There's only one work, singular, that you need to do. And that is that you need to believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God. That's all that we are required to do. That's what God requires of us. The singular work that God requires of us is faith. That's what brings us into right standing with him. And again, this is counterintuitive to the natural mind. Because the natural mind always comes to the conclusion that I have uh, done enough to get into heaven. right? But, but good works don't work uh, to get you anywhere. In the last few times I've been in a gospel conversation with someone, I've asked them, say, hey, if you were to die tonight, you were to stand before God, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? It's heartbreaking because all of the answers I've heard recently have been to the effect that, well, I've tried really hard to be good. I've tried really hard to do good things, and I think my good has outweighed my bad. I've tried my best. And again, that's our default line of thinking, but that is a misunderstanding of the gospel. And it's also a misunderstanding to think that merely because we have faith that we are in right standing with God. I love uh, 
a pastor and theologian named John Murray, and I love the way that he explains this. He says, it is not faith that saves, but faith in Jesus Christ. Strictly speaking, it is not even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ who saves through faith. The specific character of faith is that it looks away from itself and finds its whole interest and object in Christ. He is the absorbing preoccupation of faith. And that is what we are called to trust in. That is the the work that we must do. And so often we trust in the wrong works. There's really only one singular that we have to, to grasp with but what is faith? And I love uh, this story about uh, John Payton, the famous missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. And he, he struggled mightily how, how to translate the word faith because in the Aniwan language, that he, uh, the native language of the, uh, the islands there in the South Pacific, uh, that they, they didn't have a word for faith. And he was so engrossed in his study of the language that he said he even begun to think in that language, uh, just privately in his own mind. Uh, and he still was uncertain of how to translate this. And this was actually uh, went on for years. Uh, and while he's, he's struggling with how to translate this one single word for years, uh, it paused his translation of the Bible into their language. And the, the difficulty was that the island natives considered the idea of hearing as being comparable with the idea of believing. But Peyton needed a more specific word than that because uh, there's occasions in the Bible when hearing and faith appear in the same verse, right? Like Romans uh, ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing. So how do you translate that verse? Hearing comes by hearing. Your reader's just going to say, well, duh, right? So, so he has this predicament. And after years of deep thought, uh, Peyton was in his study chair. And, uh, and then he asked one of the ladies who were passing by, he says, what am I doing? Uh, and she says, you're, you're sitting down. And Peyton then lifted up his legs and he sets his feet uh, on the crossbar of the chair. And he says, now what am I doing? Uh, and she gives him this word. I don't know if this is pronounced correctly, so bear with me. Uh, it's... Uh, Thakarongrongo, okay? And meaning that you are leaning completely, that you have lifted yourself off of every other support. And he says, that's my word. That's what I've been looking for for years, the idea of resting completely and solely in Christ. And that is what we are called to do, not to trust in anything else. And if we are leaning on anything else, We are not resting completely on him. As long as our feet are on the ground, Jesus, I'm trusting you and my feet. That's not not faith. But I'm trusting you completely. Now earlier I I gave you uh, the bad news. Again, that we are all sinners separated from, from a holy God. And this is now the good news. This is the the gospel message that tells us how we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. Not by going out and trying harder, but by simply looking to Jesus in faith. And that is the singular work that we are called to do. This is the work of God. We are to lean completely upon Christ because he has died to pay the penalty for our sins. And all who look to him now are forgiven and reconciled. And if you're here this morning and you're you're hearing this and you haven't trusted in Christ completely, I I would beg for you to do that. Stop resting in yourself, but look to Jesus and trust in him. But I would also say this to those who have already trusted in Christ. Don't think that this doesn't apply to you. Because as we live the Christian life, there is a natural tendency for us to begin to depend upon ourselves. That's why in Galatians chapter 3, Paul had to speak to the Galatians and say this. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith are you so foolish having begun by the spirit are you now being perfected by the flesh his question is this if you were saved by faith not by works why are you now resorting to works as you live the christian life 
It's not a switch over there. It's always by faith. And that we live by faith. That's what we are called to continue to do is trust in Christ completely for our salvation and then trust in him completely as he sanctifies us through the power of his word and the power of his Holy Spirit that now lives inside of us. That's a trusting completely in him, even as we have already trusted in him for salvation. You know, all too often we try and live the Christian life in our own strength of, okay, Jesus did enough to save me, but then I'm going to do the rest. And that's not how it works. And so we have to embrace this as well. We fall into a misunderstanding of the gospel if we say, uh, I'm going to begin to now trust in my own works. It's not to say we don't play a part in our sanctification, but we have to still trust in Christ. At this point, we've seen three ways that we, that we misunderstand the gospel. Right? We follow with the wrong motives, we labor for the wrong food, and we trust in the wrong works. And these misunderstandings are not just found outside of the church, they're inside of the church, and they're very much inside each of our hearts right now, just waiting to crop up at different moments and at different situations. And that's why we must be aware of these m- misunderstandings, because they will lead us astray. I read a story about a, a man in New Zealand last year named uh, Remopita Ponga, or Pongi. His, he was uh, abandoned by his brother 50 miles from home. And I paused in the, the story. I'm like, I want to know more about that. Like, what happened that you would leave your brother 50 miles from home? It's a serious argument there. But uh, this 29-year-old uh, decided that wasn't too far of a walk for him. It's just 50 miles. Uh, so he pulled out Google Maps and started on his way. And he's walking along the, the coast there in New Zealand when he noticed that his iPhone app was showing him uh, a shortcut that would save him 15 miles. Okay, all he had to do was swim across uh, this uh, estuary where a river flowed into the, the ocean. So all he had to do was swim across really easily, right? But he, he gets out into the middle of his swim across this estuary, uh, and a strong riptide suddenly pulls him out a mile and a half into the ocean. Uh, and he survived by, by floating on a piece of driftwood for three hours until someone on a water scooter came and, and noticed him and then called for rescuers to come. Uh, and that is how uh, he survived. But, but that's exactly what happens if we misunderstand the path that we are called to follow in Christ. Say, Jesus has called me to, to follow this narrow path, but this looks like a shortcut, right? What could go wrong? I'll, I'll just go off here. My map here says that uh, th- this will help me save some time. But no, we are called to follow Christ. If we depart from that path, if we misunderstand the gospel... We do that at our own peril. That's why we need to understand these misunderstandings. If we follow Jesus for the wrong reasons, if we labor for the wrong food, if we trust in the wrong works, we will quickly be pushed out to sea. And again, more than likely, not even comprehending how we have arrived there. But may that never be. Let us follow Christ. Let us pursue him with the right motives. Let us labor for the food that endures to eternal life. And let us trust completely in his finished work on the cross. Amen.